it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickersons. The Bickersons have retired. As usual, Mrs. Bickerson tosses restlessly while her husband, John Insomniac Extraordinary, provides this audible testimony of his constant wakefulness. Let's listen. For the love of heaven, what is he doing? John. John! John! What's the matter with you? You are making the most frightful noises. What's the matter? What's the matter, Blanche? Are you in pain? I've got a terrible headache. Haven't slept a wink. You've been sleeping like a felled ox. Headaches. You wouldn't have such a headache if you didn't make so many cocktails before dinner. Why do you do that, John? Always do it. Why? No good to eat on an empty stomach. Put out the lights, John. The lights are out. How would you know anyway with that sleep shade on? Well, something's flashing in my head. Ow! Take an aspirin. Okay. Hmm, feel better already. How can you chew those things like that? Wash it down with something. All right. <sighs> John Bickerson, you washed it down with bourbon. You lied to me. You got the lights on. Yes, I'm going to keep them on. Sit up. I want to talk to you. Please, Blanche, I can't sit up. My head will fall off. Why do you always have to talk in the middle of the night? When else can I talk to you? You come home for dinner and bury your head in the paper. Never a word out of you. And you tell me you've got to go to bed early because you have insomnia. Well, I have. It takes me hours to fall asleep. It took you all of 30 seconds tonight. Well, this was a good night. Good night. John. John. Hmm? I went over to see the Marvin's new baby this afternoon. It's a beautiful child. Do you know their first one is over a year old? I hope so. He's been walking since he was eight months. He must be awful tired. I am too. Children are such a blessing. Mm. It's wonderful to watch them grow up. You'd be surprised how many childless couples are adopting children. I'd better have another aspirin. Boy, have I got a headache. Mm. John? Mm? Don't you miss the patter of tiny feet around the house? No, I don't, Blanche. Children are wonderful, all right, but you have to be able to afford them. All this talk of adopting. 
What the devil is that? What's what? That. Put the lights on. John. Blanche, don't tell me that you went out and... It's and only a dog, silly. A, a dog? What do we need dogs for? I got for? a little puppy. Where's the aspirin? What did you get a dog for? Now don't get hysterical. Where is the little beast? I can hear it, but I can't see it. He's right there, in the bureau. I've got him in your shirt drawer. You put him in there with my shirts? He won't suffocate. The drawer's open. Blanche, you know I'm allergic to dog hair. It gives me sinus trouble. Where's the aspirin? You are just a big hypochondriac. You imagine those allergies like you do your insomnia. I tell you, I'm allergic to dogs. They make me... make me... Get rid of that thing. He'll whine all night and keep me awake. The man said he'll keep quiet if you give him one of those worm pills. Well, where are they? On the night table by your bed. How do you give a dog... Where... They're on the night table by your bed. There's nothing here except the aspirins. The aspirins are in the medicine cabinet. How can they be in the... Blanche, what have I been eating? No wonder my headache won't go away. Why do you do these things to me? Send for a doctor. Don't carry on so. If they're good for a dog, they won't hurt you. Go to sleep. Go to sleep, she tells me. Here I am dying from dog poisoning. My, my head is splitting. She knows I'm allergic to dogs, hides the aspirin, and makes... I don't know. Get up so early, never get another wink of sleep as as long as... John. John. Hmm? Gesundheit. Thanks. I can see how much sleep I'm going to get tonight. We'll have to get rid of the puppy. Now you're talking. I want you to take him down to the dog pound. Okay, I'll do it on my way to work. You go in the opposite direction. Well, I'll go out of my way. You say it, but you won't do it. You better take him now. What? Go on, get up, take the puppy to the dog pound. Blanche, are you out of your mind? It's after two in the morning. They're open all night. Go on, get up and take him. Well, I've never heard of such a thing. You know I went to bed with a splitting headache and had to take a dozen worm pills to fall asleep. You'd take the dog to the pound quick enough if Gloria Gooseby asked you to. How do you always manage to work the conversation around a Gloria Gooseby? Well, if you wouldn't shout so much, maybe the puppy would be able to sleep. What's the use? Good night. I thought it would be nice to have a little dog, especially when we move into our new apartment. Still have a year to go on this one. Our lease expired on Friday. I renewed it yesterday. I canceled it this morning. Amos is raffling off the apartment for me. That's a good idea. Amos is what? Amos sold 500 tickets at $2 a piece, and the winner moves into our apartment tomorrow. Oh, Blanche, no. I... I don't believe it. We'll be on the street. Amos said he'll find us a new place in a jiffy. Jiffy? Haven't you heard there's a housing shortage? Where would he find a place? Well, I bought a ticket myself. It's a wonderful chance. Lovely three-room apartment, large kitchen, big closets. It's worth $2, and we might get it. Get it? We've got it now. I know. But even if we didn't win, we get the $1,000 Amos collected for the rest of the tickets. Look, Blanche, I gave the landlord a $1,200 bonus to renew the lease. So now I'm out $200 and I've got no place to live. Sounds like pretty poor business to me. Why do you make such deals? Now look, Blanche... The trouble with you, John, is that you are too conservative. Look, Blanche... If you'd pick up some of the deals that Amos has, we might be able to live as nicely as he does. Blanche... He's been living at the Biltmore Hotel for a year. He sleeps on a billiard table. Look out. Where's my slippers? What are you going to do? Let me get to that phone. I'll show... Ow! Ooh! Ooh! Put on the lights! The lights are on. Open your eyes. Oh. 
Here's here's the phone. I know it's going to ring, and I want to be ready when it does. Hello? Excuse me. Drop dead. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That wasn't Amos. I'll get it, I'll get it. Amos. Hi, Jacko. What are you doing up this time of night? Packing, Amos. We're moving, haven't you heard? Why aren't you going to invite me in? I'd like to look the place over. You mean... Yep, I won the raffle. Darndest luck I ever saw. Who drew the ticket, Amos? Fair and square. I wouldn't take a chance having some phony draw it, so I drew it myself. What a coincidence. Get out of here. What's the matter with you, Jacko? You got a thousand dollars coming, and if you're worried about a place to live, I'll rent you the garage. You haven't got a car anymore, you know. Get out of here before I hit you with a cleaver. Okay, Jacko. You don't have to get sore. You better give the money back to people you sold tickets to, or you'll have a lot of explaining to do. Not me, brother. You'll have to do the explaining. I'll tell them you won. Good night, Jacko. That guy will wind up on a chain gang as sure as... Was it Amos who won? I did. Now at last I can go to sleep in my own bed without worrying. No, you can't, dear. The dog's in there. But, oh, nuts. I'll sleep in the garage. Good night, John. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guests this hour are both educators, diversity consultants, and co-founders of Teaching While White. They are Jenna Chandler-Ward and Elizabeth Denevy, I believe, but I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, And they have co-written a book, Learning and Teaching While White, anti-racist strategies for school communities and they both joined me by phone uh jenna elizabeth uh, good morning and welcome to the show good morning thank you for having us elizabeth teach me how do Denevi. i denevi okay now i'll try and, i'll yeah. try and get that right but i'm terrible with names so you may have to work no on me a little bit throughout the hour but um Let's um, let's start out with. Uh, I've got I've got some notes, some questions. Now you don't usually go by them, but this first one is going to lead me into something I really want to ask about and talk about. So we'll go with that. The role white people can and need to play in dismantling racism. How do you go from not being racist to being anti-racist? Well, that's a great question. Uh, Thank you, Tom. And it's a big reason why we wrote the book. When I was growing up, I didn't know that I had a role to play in ending racism. Um, I grew up in Northern California, and it wasn't something that we ever talked about. Uh, Talked about my ethnic background a lot, but not my racial background and being white. So I think one thing is to know that white people who often see themselves as good white people, right? Uh, The vast majority of white folks aren't (laughs) walking around carrying Confederate flags, right? Um, And and spouting racist ideas. So I think oftentimes we feel like we're fine, right? It's it's the problem of those bad white people out there. So 
I think really starting to realize that we do have a role to play for as long as racism has been operating. Of course, people of color have been fighting against it, but there also have been white people throughout time um, that have stood shoulder to shoulder with people of color to end racism. So figuring out our role from our, you know, wherever we stand, um, whether it's working with kids, whether it's talking with other adults, whether it's talking with family members, and really starting to figure out that we need to speak up, we need to start naming things when they're happening, and we need to be talking about um, the fact that we are white and that that matters, that means something, um, and that we have all have a role to play in dismantling racism. Now, was that Elizabeth or Jenna? That was Elizabeth. Okay. Um, then I'll give this next question to... Um, to Jenna, and it's uh, it's a geography question. It's worth five points. Um, no, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm kidding. I don't know where I went there, but I, but I will ask this: You're both co-founders of uh, Teaching While White, co-authors of this book, both teachers and consultants when it comes to uh, diversity, and yet you're on opposite coasts. How did you end up doing these things together? Uh, we met at a conference many, many years ago and just had casual conversation. And we bumped into each other from time to time at different conferences and work, work environments. And at a certain point, I decided I wanted to start a blog because when we talk about race and education, usually what we're talking about are black and brown students, black and brown families, black and brown faculty, and nobody was ever really naming whiteness. And though we know 80, over 84% of teachers in this country are white and that most schools were started for and by white people in this country, and we weren't talking about whiteness as though it were a race. It was just the default, right? It's just what's normal. And so without the conversation about whiteness, there was so much focus on black and brown folks. Yeah, Jenna, how, that's that's sort of like, um, you know, everybody in the country has an accent except people from Michigan. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's the stuff we can't hear or see or name, right? And so well, the, I thought, the stuff the... that we're the most used to, um, yeah. it, it's not even that we intend it to be default. It just is. That's right. That's right. Nobody's intending to, well, some people are, but for the most part, we just aren't aware in the same way of the things that we're used to. Exactly. So it's, it's changing that awareness, and that's what I wanted to talk about. And so I thought, well, maybe we should have a blog about what are teachers doing across the country? How, how are people naming that this is the default in education? And so I called Elizabeth Denevi because she is one of the first people to start doing this work. And I told her about this idea, and we decided, wouldn't it be cool to do this together? So that's how it started with a blog and then we quickly followed up with a podcast and then we started doing workshops and it just it's had a life of its own and it just keeps evolving until eventually we wrote this book. More with the co-founders of Teaching While White, Jenna Chandler Ward and Elizabeth Denevi straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with the co-founders of Teaching While White, Janet Chandler Ward and Elizabeth Denevi, straight ahead. You know, it's it's interesting. I've I've talked with people about race an awful lot on this show over the last decade or more, and one of the things that's that seems somewhat challenging to me is, you know, we've we've evolved over the last ten or fifteen years from this idea of uh, you're not racist if you don't intentionally commit these these um, macro acts of of aggression um, without even noticing the micro aggressions and then all of a sudden there's this idea that you know you can't call yourself not a racist unless you're anti-racist and I'm not sure exactly myself what I need to do to be considered anti-racist and I know there are a lot of people who don't know either who have thought of themselves for most of their adult lives as not being racist. Sure, and I think I'd love to use an analogy. Um, There's a wonderful scholar named uh, Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, and she has a great metaphor for talking about racism, and and I think it helps sort of explain anti-racism. She thinks about racism as sort of a, a moving walkway, like you might see in the airport or you know, in big buildings where, you know, it's kind of always on, it's always moving. And some people get on the walkway and they sort of just set their stuff down and they wait to sort of be carried to the end. And in a way, they're sort of passive. They're just sort of rolling along, um, not, not walking fast, not doing anything. Then you have sort of, and she would sort of call those people more sort of passive in, in sort of um, in their fight against racism. And then she talks about really active racists who get on the walkway somebody like me, I'm usually late um, running for a flight uh, through the airport. And I go sort of, you know, speeding along the walkway. And she might think of that as more of our active racists, like the Ku Klux Klan or, you know, other folks where we sort of say, like, those are bad racist white people. The problem is, is that whether you're just sitting or you're walking fast, we all end up in the same place. And so her call for anti-racism is that we have to like turn around and walk the other way on the walkway, try to get off the walkway and might even say, you know, we should tear down the rock walkway altogether. So it's helpful for me to think about in my own life, what are the things that I'm just going along with that I just do? Somebody says something makes me uncomfortable. I just don't say anything. And how would we start to sort of disrupt some of those daily patterns, those things and, and Jenna and I like to say the first part of talking around, tur- you know, turning around and walking the other way on the walkway for us and our anti-racist practice was to really understand how we had been socialized around our race in this country. What were the messages that we got either explicit or implicit? Um, and, and if it wasn't something we talked about, why? What does that mean? And then really working to try to talk with other white people explicitly about that kind of racial identity being committed to asking questions. I think sometimes we think anti-racism has to be big moments um, that I have to sort of show up at a protest or I have to be a national leader or 
You know, have to be these big things. And certainly we need those big movements, but we also need the everyday small moments um, and the ways that we are talking with other white people in our lives and our colleagues about the role of race, what it looked like for us. So that's some of the ways that I think about it. I hope that metaphor might be helpful. Yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm pretty old, so... <laughs> a lot of my a lot of my memories uh growing up are from the the 60s and early 70s and there was a phrase and I've I've shared this phrase with with people when talking about issues of race that I remember um my my fellow white people saying um and and with all of the absolute best intentions that were that that ended up being probably hurtful in some cases and with absolutely no intention of being so when they would say some of my best friends are colored mm. yeah. and of course colored was the word at that time um you know not long after the founding of the NAACP which National Advancement or National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and and they would say that with all with absolutely all the best intention, without realizing that that was a little hurtful. Mm-hmm. And and what I'm what I'm concerned about is that we fast forward to 2022, and we say, okay, you've got to be anti-racist. And that's the first thing somebody's going to say. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think um, this is Jenna. Yeah, Jenna, how do we, you know, how do we make sure that we don't, you know, with the best intention, do it wrong? Yeah, I think that's where people get tripped up, right? They're afraid they're going to do it wrong, so we do nothing at all. And we sort of think that... (laughs) that doing nothing is neutral, but we know that that's actually not neutral at all, that that's sort of co-signing with the status quo or saying, you know, I agree if we are silent. And so we know, and the reason we wrote this book specifically for teachers, that teachers want to do right by their students, right? Very few people go into education with the aim of harming children, right? And it's, it's our intentions are always, almost always very good. And we're here to help and to be part of passing on goodness to the next generation. And yet we know harm is happening in schools all the time. And so I think that's where we want to start. It's that instead of defending our intentions, we think, how can we do better by all of our students and make sure that we are giving our students what they need? And instead of, you know, defending our intentions, we look at the impact of the things that we do. I have a friend, Rosetta Lee, who uses the analogy of, if I run over your foot, I'm not going to get out of the car and say, oh, I think you're making too much out of this and, oh, how dare you insinuate any, you know, anything about me or who I am as a driver, right? Some of my best friends are pedestrians, all the kinds of things that we tend to do about race instead of saying, oh, my gosh, you're hurt. What can I do? Can I take you to the hospital? How do I make this better? See, that's the key question, Jenna. 
what can I do? Yeah. And we're not asking that enough. We're we're so anxious to do something that we rush right in and come up with those those dumb phrases like all my friends, you know, <laughs> or you know, a lot of my friends are colored. Is right. to you know to show that we're doing something instead of just and I think of of government programs and legislation falling into that category instead of saying what can we do. What would you like to see? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I also think, Tom, you know, we have hundreds of years of testimony from people of color about what the effects of racism, you know, how racism has impacted them. We have good data, speaking of governments, right, like we collect all kinds of data. And we know that despite the civil rights movement, and our best efforts, right, uh, we still have really major racial disparities in this country. And so I think part of that notion or part of where that piece comes from, like all my best friends are people of color or my best friend is black, you know, again, it's trying to defend ourselves as good white people. And Jenna and I always like to say, you know, we, all ask, we often ask ourselves the question, um, what if being called racist were the beginning as opposed to the end of the conversation? And what might it mean for me to be able to say, gosh, despite my best intentions, I've been participating in some of this. And I think, again, it goes back to white people wanting to not show up as bad white people. And that's, that's where that comment comes from, right? Like, oh, I'm a good person. Look, I'm, I'm friendly. Look at who my friends are. And I don't often think we stop to sort of examine and see the reason that that's hurtful is because it's about us. It's not about the injury to people of color. We're still defending ourselves as good white people. And so Jen and I are really trying to promote conversations in schools, but also with parents um, and with community members about having white folks wade in and have these conversations that I think we've been scared to have and that we've, we've really wanted to continue to see ourselves as good people and really say, you know, what if we're really good people and we still make mistakes? And what happens if I still say something that's a racial <laughs> stereotype? Right. Instead of defending it, do I know what I'm going to do when it happens? Right. Because I don't I don't sort of think anymore. Well, gosh, did I say something racist? It's more like, no, I'm going to say something racist. The question is, because that's the way racism works. Right. It's set up to pit us against each other. And it's a very efficient system. So am I ready? Right. Am I prepared that when I have a person of color say, gosh, Elizabeth, that thing you just said, that didn't sit right with me do I know what I'm going to do, right, to make it better? And, and that's why we wrote the book, to sort of provide folks with steps to be able to say, no, look, we, we have a lot of testimony. We know how racism operates. What we need to talk more about is how white folks can work together to really try to end um, these things that have been happening for centuries and um, really be living in solidarity with other people of color. But I think, um, don't you think that despite the the information that we've collected and the data and all of the knowledge that we have that we would be surprised if we just asked the question at the answers we would get and and i i have an example there was a a moment uh not this not this summer but last summer uh during black lives matter demonstrations in the wake of the george floyd killing and there was one here in Flint in, in Genesee County, and our local sheriff 
was all suited up with all of his riot gear and and had um, people from two or three different departments and they were sort of standing by in case this demonstration got unruly and they started this this march they meaning the the protesters and at one point there was a meeting that that you know, could have looked like um, a confrontation from a distance. And the sheriff said to one of the people leading the march, um, what do you want me to do? What can I do? Now, what do you think the guy responded? The police officer? No, the, the leader of the demonstration, the leader of the march. Oh, got it. How did they how did they respond to the police officer's question? Yeah. Well, I I would you know, hope that yeah, go ahead. You know what he said? And it was such a beautiful moment. He said, "Walk with us." And nobody would have predicted that that's what he was going to say. And that's exactly what the sheriff did. He ordered everybody to, you know, stand down, take their gear off, turn around and walk with the group. And it it made national news, and it was you know it was a genius moment. But but kudos to the to the leader of the march, um, for not turning it into a whole laundry list of demands and stuff. Just walk with us. Just show us you care. Right. That was a cool. And moment. maybe Tom. Yeah. No, I think. I think we need those moments of, of when we can come together. And I think because we live in such racial isolation and segregation, right, we don't often have the time to walk cross-racially, right, and, and learn what other people's experiences are and what's happening. I, I do think um, what's been so powerful about the Black Lives Matter movement is they've had very clear demands um, and have been very specific about the kind of changes they want to see. And they really have worked really hard to sort of be in relationship, right, and, and work on these partnerships in communities. And so I think it's a, it's a powerful example, and I'm so glad you shared it, um, of how we have to work on all these levels, right? We have to have systemic change. We have to demand that programs be different and things shift. And we have to be able to walk shoulder to shoulder and really understand somebody else's experience especially if, like, for most white people, they don't live with around other people of color, right? They're not spending time with them. They're not in the grocery store with them. They're not in religious services with them, right? Um, we're really segregated. So I think it's a really important moment of, of how we can come together. Well, that's why it's so important to have conversations like the one we're having, but also to have uh, people with some expertise like yourselves writing books like this because you're right, there there is this separation that goes on, and and some of it's, you know, not not very intentional and and not mean spirited. Black people move into neighborhoods with other black people, and white people do that. And, you know, in some bigger cities, there's Chinatown and Koreatown. And, you know, it. That's something that happens on its own without any bad intention. And then in in areas where they, there aren't diverse populations, they have no idea what's going on. Right. And so when somebody says, 
you know, you can't simply be not not be a racist. You have to be anti-racist. There, I don't even know where that starts. Yeah. Well, I think your your description of the the neighborhood segregation, Tom, is such a great example where white people today could go on and look because those white neighborhoods didn't happen by accident. Um, there were very intentional um, decisions made at the state and city levels um, to decide um, something that we call redlining, um, which was to decide that people of color could live in certain neighborhoods. We actually drew a circle around where they could be, and they weren't allowed to be in other places. So I would suggest anybody listening, do you know the history of your neighborhood? Even if you have People can look at now their house deeds, um, even uh, leasing agreements. So if you rent where you are, that sometimes there's still old covenants in there that said folks couldn't uh, rent or couldn't sell to particular groups of people. So I think that's a great example of a good place to start because those neighborhoods, they didn't just happen, right? Um, most of it was very intentional. If you live near major freeways, looking where major freeways go through, do they cut through predominantly white neighborhoods or do they generally cut through predominant um, neighborhoods that are predominantly people of color, right? And just paying attention to that geography is a great place to start. Yeah, I just I just wanted to point out how easy it is for, for policies like redlining to work when you have people that are are drawn to each other anyway by language and culture and and food and and other things so you can say all right this this is where the white people are going to live and other people will live here and this group will live here and and they can do those kinds of things but the reason that people you know just go along with it is um because of of that sense of connection yeah, yeah, for the white people, absolutely, problem. right? Yeah. And it's, um, in any event, it's it's something that white people need to learn. Because, you know, when, when people talk about white privilege, I'm not sure all white people even even know or realize what that privilege is. Yeah, there's lots of different parts of our identity, right? And so, for example, a lot of white people grew up poor, which so for me, when I hear the term privilege, it makes me think of like having stuff. If you have a lot of privilege, that must mean you have a lot of wealth or access to stuff. And that's sometimes the case. But really, when we're thinking about privilege, it's about the absence of obstacles. So... I've had obstacles because I grew up with not a lot of money, but I've never had obstacles because of the color of my skin. And so I think that's where people get confused sometimes. It's, you know, it's hard to say I have privilege if you feel like in certain areas of your life you've had a lot of obstacles. And that very well may be true. It just means that you haven't had obstacles because of the color of your skin. Yeah, I don't know anybody that's been pulled over for driving while white. That's right. That's right. Yep, exactly. But it happens to black and brown people a lot. Yep, that's right. In fact, somebody wrote somebody wrote a book, and I'm trying to think of who the author's name was, and I'll, I'll remember it, you know, sometime tomorrow afternoon. But, um, <laughs> but the the book was called Driving While Brown, 
you know, with somebody from the Southwest, and and you know, it's it's much bigger there than it is in other communities, um, you know, in cities like St. Louis and Detroit and Atlanta, it's it's more black than anything else, but um, in the Southwest, it's driving while brown. Mm. Yeah, I think we can agree. It's black and brown people who tend to have those experiences most often. Right. And uh, and I, I had somebody I just, just interviewed this week um, who had written a book uh, called Unruly Women, and it was about uh, the wearing of, of hijabs and in, in how people are reacting to them. Pretty interesting. Well, it's interesting, Tom. Yeah, it's such an interesting example because I grew up Catholic. And what's so interesting is all the nuns in our church, of course, had their heads covered just like Muslim women would have um, wearing the hijab. And it's so interesting that we never commented or made a judgment about those nuns who vast majority were white, right? Vast majority of folks in our congregation were white. But I, that's one thing I've been able to think about as a white person, like, huh, why are some white folks so upset, right, about certain people covering themselves when in my religious tradition, right, there was never a comment about the nuns. They were beloved, right? They were seen as holy and lovely, right? And so I think that's a great example how, based on the way we were raised and our understanding of our racial identity, we could see that head covering in very different ways. One group we'd make a judgment about, as positive, another group we might make a judgment about as making us uncomfortable or being negative or, gosh, those women, are they somehow, you know, not standing up for themselves or whatever, whatever, whatever the, the commentary may be. It's a great example. Well, and I, I really wanted to get into and, and dig deep on critical race theory, but we're out of time. <laughs> and this conversation is so important and, and it's gone so quickly. I, and I appreciate you both, uh, Jenna Chandler Ward and Elizabeth uh, Denevi. Did I say it right? Yes. All right. Yes, you got it. I, I did get it. And see, I've got another call coming in for an interview. Um, but um, I always like to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? We do. It's org. And our book, Learning and Teaching While White, is available anywhere where books are sold. Well, I want to thank you both for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning. And um, keep up the good work. Great. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having us. All right. Take care. Again, that was uh, Jenna Chandler Ward and Elizabeth uh, Denevi. They are the co-authors of Learning and Teaching While White, Anti-Racist Strategies for School Communities. They are uh, both educators and co-founders of an organization called Teaching While White. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. From the Tom Sumner
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. From the Tom Sumner Show. Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila, tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacle that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, 
table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. few years, a type of meeting place has grown up throughout the country, which is called a coffee house. There are many uninitiated people who have never been into a coffee house, I being one of them. Uh, We're seated now at a table, across from which is a man uh, who seems rather depressed. Uh, sir, uh, you, you are depressed. Yeah. Uh, would it be getting too personal to ask you why? I'm not pretty. You are depressed because you feel you're not attractive. I'm not attractive. You're not good-looking. No, I'm not. Well, what would you say, sir? That's why I'm I... mainly depressed. Well, may I, may, I, may I say something to you, sir? Yes. You are a very attractive person. You're as attractive as nine out of 15 people I know. <laughs> you're very kind. But you are. You're not you're an unattractive very, person. You're very sweet. But I, I know the, the truth, and I face it every morning. You're a good-looking man, sir. I'm not a man. I'm a woman. <laughs> Oh, 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 I see. Oh, I, I, I beg your pardon. Uh, we'll, we'll go over to one of the other tables now okay. and see if we can speak. Uh, Goodbye. Thank you very wow. much, sir, uh, madam. Madam, um, there's a gentleman sitting here wearing a pair of Levi's, a nicely laundered T-shirt, uh, looking very much like an actor. Uh, I might describe him as looking like a cross between... Uh, Marlon Brando and Joanne Woodward. <laughs> I, I want to explain that. You do have blonde hair. May we sit and talk with you, sir? Uh, if you are so uh, in your mind, too. <laughs> yes. Was I right, sir? Was I right? Are you an actor? Yes, I uh, happen to be a uh, lesbian. <laughs> I think, uh, I think, <laughs> I think, sir. I think you, can I check you on that? I think it's, uh, you mean thespian. Well, uh, is that what? Thespian. Thespian, actually. Thespian. Yes, yes. I'll never get that wrong again. <laughs> uh, 
Sir, who is your... Who do you consider the greatest actor we have in America today? The greatest actor in America is Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> I think she's... Well, she's a, she's a great actress. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean an actor, actress. I mean that she knows what she's doing up there, you know? Well, who else do you like? Who would you pattern yourself after? I would pattern myself after... I love that picture, The Fugitive Kind. I loved it very much. Very much. <laughs> so... Uh, so you're trying to I tried to uh, be like Brando with my T-shirt and just look uh, very much like Joanne Woodward, who I love very much. I love her. Well, you know, usually when people... I also look a little like the producer. I love him, too. <laughs> Marty Giroux. Is that again? Mar Marty Giroux. He produced that picture. You'll notice my shoes are exactly like his. I love that picture yeah. that much. Well, sir, that I, I became everything in it. I see. Sir, I think I made a mistake. You're not an actor. No, I'm not. Not an actor, well, but, I'm, but I love to hang out here. Okay. Well, it was a pleasure speaking. Well, it was a pleasure almost to be an actor. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. I've got to wend my way through the crowd. Oh, uh, good luck on your wending. <laughs> and goodbye. And if I can do anything for you, you just call upon me, sir. Can I talk to you now? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. okay. I understand. You have to go to other people yes. on the record. I know that. Yeah, yeah. I know that. All part. Right. I watched you before in the coffee house. All right, ladies. Goodbye. So long. I hope I'm an actor. <laughs> We're going to a corner of the coffee house now. Uh, on the walls surrounding this table are many, many paintings. There's a gentleman sitting here with a palette, palette knife, some brushes, some oils, and I imagine that he is the gentleman who painted these paintings. Am I right, sir? That is correct in your assumption. And the painting... Uh, you are totally correct. Uh, the painting... And impeccably dressed, if I may say so. Thank you. Thank you very much. A lovely tie. Thank you. Gradually blending into the color of your suit. You are always interested in color and design. Color is my life. I am color. Your name is... Uh, what is your name, sir? Corinne Corfu. Corinne Corfu. Uh, you are yes. Greek. I hope I am Greek. I would like to be Greek very much. Well, you're, that is a Greek name, and you have a Greek accent. Yes. Well, then perhaps I am. <laughs> well, don't you know your don't you know your derivation? No, I do not know uh, my derivation. Gypsies stole me as a child. <laughs> a band of gypsies. And you were brought up where? I was brought up in the Persian Gulf, right here in Miami. <laughs> It's the Persian Gulf. No, it's a gypsy tea house. The rest Sir, of I, called the Persian Gulf. I would like to talk to you about your paintings. Now, yes, you certainly made it's my life. Color are, and art. I are, love art. They are very unusual. I noticed that... God bless you for your perceptions. <laughs> I noticed one... You also... Uh, you sculpt, too, I noticed. Main, uh, sculpting and painting. All the arts. Uh, there is a, a metallic sculpture there that is very interesting. Yes, metal, metallic. What do you call that? It's just a series of wires uh, in a grid-like effect. What oh, you mean above the door? Yes, what do you call yes, that? Yes, that's called the air conditioning. <laughs> Sorry, sir. I did not uh, make that. No. The, the feathers, the feathers company made, but it's very beautiful. Yes. Your paintings are very abstract, I noticed. Yes, but they don't blow air out. Like <laughs> the, the, the machines. No. May I ask you about some of the paintings? Yes, instance, you certainly may. That painting there that is entitled The Gull on a Hot Rock. Yes. Now, I don't see anything on that but a bunch of little specks. Yes, well, I saw the girl on a hot rock from over five miles away. Uh, oh, I, I see. I was standing on a cliff. That's why I painted in the perspective, the three little dots. Now, uh, getting closer, sir, I'm, uh, may I examine a little more closely? Certainly, not too close. Yes. yes. Now, that is not paint, those dots. They look like, that's, 
Those are flies. Yes, they are. They're flies. But you didn't paint that. Those are real flies. No, I took them, uh, caught them in my hand until the air was out of their bodies and they died. <laughs> and then I... Uh, you pasted uh, them onto them? little dots of blue and put them on the dots. And, and they represent the gold and the rocks. I had to kill them. If I had not killed them, if they were not dead and glued to my picture, <laughs> then I have no picture. <laughs> I fly away, I got nothing, Charlie. I see. In the dark. Well, I excuse you. What are you going to buy? Well, sir, may I ask you about this particular abstract? Yes, they're you mainly know? impressionistic, post-impressionistic, yes. pre-impressionistic, and impressionistic. Yes, this one is more of a, an academician type of painting. No, it's not. Well, for instance, it's very graphic, it's very graphic. Yes, it's it, very graphic. It's very graphic. <laughs> it's a draftsman-like quality. The spaghetti looks like spaghetti. The limp salad looks like limp salad. And the garlic oh, bread oh, looks oh, like garlic bread. Oh, oh, no. That's not a picture. That's my supper. <laughs> I, I, it happens to be resting on a frame in my easel. Oh, that's my dinner. I eat that. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. sir. It looks... Do you like... Wait a minute. Do you really like it? Well, it is. Do you think it looks like the a... The composition a is rather... Of, uh, yes, I thought it was thickly painted. I tell you what. <laughs> if you really like it, I can lacquer it up and give it to you for 40 dollars. <laughs> no, I'm afraid, I'm no. afraid I wouldn't want to take your, deprive right. you of your supper, sir. How about just a coffee and cake? <laughs> Maybe not for 20 dollars. No, sir. I'm... Give me a dollar and a half for the coffee. <laughs> Sir, I'm really not interested. Give me 40 cents you can have. All right, here's 40 cents, sir. All right. Thank you very here's the much. Cake. Nice working with you. Yes. I hope you come in again. I will, sir. God bless your guy. I, I don't want the coffee. No, you want the picture with the flies? No, you just keep Give it. Give me a dime. <laughs> you can have it. I kill more flies. What the hell is it? All right. Goodbye. In a corner of the coffee house is a gentleman sitting with a very, very strange instrument on his lap. Uh, sir, may we speak with you? Hello. <laughs> uh, what is your name, sir? May we get your name? Uh, my name is uh, Charlie Grape. <laughs> Charlie Grape. Yes. Uh, do you perform here at the uh, coffee house? Yes, uh, on occasion I do, and then they uh, they kind of get mad at me, and then I don't. I think I can get permission for you to play for us. I'd Wait, like. Can to... you? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I would. It's the first time I've ever gotten permission here. Just kind of... We'd certainly like to hear a sample of your music. Certainly. Let me just get tuned up. I'm trying to find an A here. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Got it first shot out of the box. My A. Now, what are you going to play for us? Uh, 22 men. All right. For the record, 22 men. 22 men. Here we Sung go. Sung by Charlie Grape. Here we are. <laughs> I get mainly A out of it. <laughs> I don't get more than A out of it. 22 men fell down and hurt their knees. 22 men fell down and hurt their knees. 22 men fell down, down to the ground. 22 men fell down and hurt their knees. Would you like to hear the release? Do you have one? Yeah. Now, 22 men fell down and hurt their... That's not a release, sir. That's the same as the... Uh, yeah. Bridge. Okay. 
Okay, how about another completely different song and a new tune? Yes, I'd like okay. Could you make it up on the spot? I certainly can. It's my best part. This is extemporaneous. Ex- yeah, whatever. When two German soldiers hurt their knees. <laughs> Twenty-two German. So I think Sorry, you know that too. Yeah. It's very similar to the other one. Yeah. Well, How does it differ? It differs in the fact that the first twenty-two men were not German soldiers. <laughs> well, is this the enough? second twenty-two men are German soldiers? Well, it's the can same. You, can you play? It's the same uh, that they hurt their knee. That's right. You caught me there. Yeah. Can you, you sing that. something completely different? Okay. Completely different. You know the uh, the calypso balladeers make up songs right on the spot, topical songs. Yes. They can do. you do that? I'll try to. Okay. Okay. Twenty-two calypso men. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. 